You're listening to WLPN 1055 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Medelicero, and this is the Sunday, May 31st, 2020 edition of Labor Express. On tonight's episode of Labor Express Radio, we continue our ongoing examination of how unions and social movements are responding to the COVID-19 crisis and how the working class has responded to this crisis with an historic level of self-activity, militancy, and creativity. One form of response has been to strike. The strike is the ultimate economic and even at times political weapon of the working class. The power to shut down production, to take away the boss's ability to make his or her profits, to take control in its most advanced form of the means of production. Unfortunately, it is a weapon that the labor movement has become afraid to use much in recent years. Strikes, especially the bold sit-down type strikes in the auto industry organized by the emergent CIO unions, one is the modern industrial unions back in the 1930s. The great strike wave of 1945-46, the biggest strike wave in U.S. history, further cemented the gains of the 30s. But they also resulted in a backlash, the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act, which weakened union power. Unions began the slow, decades-long retreat after, and the strike was increasingly shelved as a tool. When you don't exercise a muscle, it becomes frail and atrophied. The increasingly fewer strikes when carried out were far more timid actions than those sit-down strikes of the 30s, actions that were careful not to break free of the many constraints of U.S. labor law and as a result, rarely fully shut down production and even more rarely were successful. One lost strike after another, the strike became even less attractive. But now we see hundreds, even thousands of workers across the country, many not even members of unions, deciding to bring back the strike as their only option to protect their lives and that of their families in this pandemic. Now, the term strike can be used expansively and loosely, which we are certainly doing in this case. Many of the strikes that have broken out in the last couple months in response to COVID-19 really probably better fit the definition of workplace actions. Some involve a small subset of the workforce and not all of the company's workers, as is the case with the Amazon worker actions. Many of them have been short-term, downing tools, walking off the job for hours or maybe days until the boss makes specific workplace policy changes, or even shorter symbolic actions that don't always result in any specific outcome, of which, again, the Amazon actions are a good example. Almost none of these recent strikes have resulted in significant long-term disruptions to production or service operations, though many have threatened to. The potential meat shortages that were forecast with the proposed shutdown of all meatpacking plants being one example. But that does not mean that these workplace actions are not important, significant, and even potentially historic. Indeed, I would argue that they are. There has been one labor news site that has been the go-to source to keep track of the depth and breadth of this strike wave. Payday Report, the labor news site operated by journalist Mike Elk and his crew, has been maintaining a COVID-19 strike tracker since the early days of the COVID-19 crisis. I spoke to Mike the other day about the tracker and the meaning of this strike wave, and we'll have that on tonight's program. Also on tonight's program, we'll hear from teachers about how they are responding to the pandemic, not only from the CTU, which recently launched a lawsuit against U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, but also from National President of the AFT, Randy Weingarten, and even from an educator in Brazil, another nation in which the COVID-19 crisis has had a major impact and the government has tried to pretend the whole crisis is a hoax. Sound familiar? And then we'll hear from Elijah Edwards, President of AFSCME Local 2858, about what's in the proposed HEROES Act and how it could impact social services at the state and local level. But before we go on, I cannot dive into tonight's program without acknowledging the ongoing uprising in Minneapolis and the solidarity protest that has ignited around the country. The tragic murder of African-American George Floyd by a white Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, and the initial reluctance of authorities to arrest and charge Chauvin and his fellow officers exploded into protests that have taken on the character of the 1992 Los Angeles Rebellion that followed the not guilty verdict of the Rodney King police beating trial, or even the urban uprisings of the 60s. I had hoped to have a segment on tonight's program directly addressing these historic events, but with limited time, I was not able to pull that off for this program. What I do want to take a moment, though, to acknowledge is uh, something that I found really interesting and and really powerful. I think uh, a good example of uh, concrete solidarity by a union in a situation like this 
Um, the ATU, the Amalgamated Transit Union, issued a statement um, and then backed it up with real concrete solidarity in this situation. Um, and we'll start off with uh, the statement that was released by Amalgamated Transit Union International President John Costa. Uh, here's the statement that he issued. We are deeply disturbed and angered by the tragic death of George Floyd, an African-American who was held handcuffed on the ground by a white Minneapolis police officer who kneeled on Floyd's neck as he pleaded, I can't breathe. These all-too-familiar words first uttered by Eric Garner, an African-American who was suffocated during a 2014 arrest by a white New York police officer, come as a tragic reminder of the injustices inflicted on persons of color every day in the United States. We as a nation must not tolerate the brutality on display in this ugly event, nor can we continue to abide the hate of racial profiling that makes awful incidents like this all too common. We are calling for a full and independent investigation to Floyd's death and for appropriate action to be taken to ensure that justice is served. Furthermore, as members, bus drivers have the right to refuse work they consider dangerous or unsafe during the pandemic. So too, Minneapolis bus drivers, our members, have the right to refuse the dangerous duty of transporting police to protest and arrested demonstrators away from these communities where many of these drivers live. This is a misuse of public transit. The Amalgamated Transit Union has a long history of fighting for social justice, as well as the rights and equal treatment of all people regardless of race, gender, religion, or sexual orientation. If any good is to come of this, we in the labor movement and the nation must unite to stop the systematic cycle of injustice, racism, and hatred that plagues our country. But what, really, what makes this so powerful is that they back that up with real action, with real concrete solidarity. Apparently in Minneapolis, and I'm, I guess what I'm hearing too is in other parts of the country as well, uh, they refused, the bus drivers refused to uh, be a part of uh, bringing police to these various sites uh, for repressing the protests and refused to be involved in uh, taking protesters that were arrested um, from these sites to uh, detention uh, to be used by the police in that way. So it's a real concrete act of solidarity uh, with the protesters, uh, with the uh, family of uh, George Floyd. Um, that's what real concrete union solidarity in this case should look like. And I just really want to I'll point that out and hats off to the ATU for that action. Uh, I just wanted to take a moment uh, to acknowledge that uh, before we moved on with the rest of the program. So it's been a few weeks since we had opportunity to hear from our friends at Radio Lear based in Canada. Well, tonight's program is The Night, a recent episode of Solidarity News focused on teachers unions and how they were dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. On the episode, they featured Fatima De Silva, the general secretary of CNTE in Brazil, Brazil has the second highest number of COVID-19 cases in the world after the U.S. It doesn't help at all that Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, is even worse than Trump in regards to being a right-wing dictator wannabe with a hugely inflated ego and zero trust in science or the truth. He has taken the COVID-19 is a myth line to an extreme beyond even what we've seen from Trump. De Silva also briefly addressed another underlying issue, and I think a danger that existed even prior to the pandemic, but that the COVID-19 crisis is encouraging significantly, the move from traditional in-person, in-classroom education to virtual online education. Be aware of what that means. This segment also includes Randy Weingarten, president of the AFT, talking about what teachers unions have done in response to the pandemic. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. Hello, I'm Mark Boulanger. One of the ways the labour movement is reacting to the global pandemic is by helping to ensure that voices from developing countries are being heard. For example, the American Federation of Teachers, the AFT, held a webinar recently to discuss the situation in Honduras, Argentina, Chile, and Brazil. One of the participants in the webinar was Fatima de Silva. Ms. de Silva is the General Secretary of the Education Workers Union in Brazil, which operates under its acronym CNTE. She represented Education International, the Global Union for Teachers and Other Education Workers. Ms. Da Silva's comments were simultaneously translated into English. We are having 
very serious problems in our region, very serious economic problems in our region. And we also had a political problem before everything started, and this was very complicated. Uh, you know about our political conflict in many of the region's countries. So these pandemics just aggravated everything, economically and politically. Today, this situation is also affecting education. Brazil, as you know, is the country that has the largest number of victims and the largest number of cases, official cases at least. However, we do know that what's going on is really larger than what's already been said officially. Bolsonaro that's not really believing in pandemics. There is a huge conflict because of this, because Brazil is a federation. So the measures that have been taken by local governments and by province governments are in contradiction with the president himself. The Supreme Court of Brazil unapproved the national government to take any measure in terms of this lockdown and quarantine at a national level. So local governments and provincial governments have to be autonomous right now to take and make decisions. But this is not enough because even so, economic capital, along with the evangelic churches and with the 30% of approval that Bolsonaro have, they are pressuring so that everything goes back to normal. And we've already seen sectors going back to normal practices. And of course, as a result, more people infected, more people being affected by this disease. Now, education. All of the classes are suspended, all the way from kindergartens, colleges, even if they're public or private, they are out right now. They are in lockdown and they are going to digital platforms. There's a lot of advertising in the TV saying that no one is left behind, but the public sector is going through the different ways to attempt to provide education, a remote education, but the economic market is always wanting to win. So they start selling platforms for these huge digital platforms. Now, the digital gap that we are going through in the country, I'm talking about internet access, won't allow a remote education. So this attempt to have access to platform or virtual classes or even scheduled classroom has to be used as a complement but it also has to help us uh, know what to do with students that do not have access to internet we are fighting against pandemics and we are trying to warranty uh, life and we are also trying to defend life above economy and everything but we also have to fight against an unhealthy uh, diseased government that doesn't know what to do or that's not doing the right thing but it's also affecting society as everything de todas las centrales sindicales, de todos los sindicatos de trabajadores de educación y de todo el grupo de la izquierda, de las frentes populares de la población. The president of the AFT, Randy Weingarten, used the webinar to outline what she and her union have been doing to face the crisis caused by the coronavirus. Thank you, Fatima, for what you just said. I know that many of the Latin American countries are about four or five weeks behind the United States in terms of the pandemic in and of itself. But then we have the leaders more callous, more cruel, more head in their sand. But what's happened is that because of the way they are, their narcissism, their psychosis, that for them, this is all about them and they look to see what opportunities they had about this, like in Washington, Trump trying to stop immigration. Part of what's going on is that those countries that have people like Bolsonaro or Trump, we will actually be in worse shape because these leaders, while they did not create COVID, they have made it worse and will make it worse 
because of their downplaying of the illness and their defunding of public health structures and their completely psychotic and contradictory messages about what people should do and the pitting of the economy versus public health. So what were the first few steps we did and what are the steps we're doing right now? What we tried to do from February 2nd, or our first conf- our first press conference on this was February 2nd. Not March 2nd, not April 2nd, February 2nd. So these are the four issues that we were focused on. Number one was the safety and well-being of our members and the communities they serve. We have 3,500 locals throughout the country. That essentially meant every single rural, suburban, and urban area. And we knew after a while that if they didn't close schools, we would have to force it because of the transmission of the disease. So that was how we closed schools, create grab-and-goes, create rec centers for kids for childcare of essential workers, and also changing remote education on a dime. So number one, the safety, well-being, and health of our members and the communities we serve. Number two, focus like a laser on those who are safeguarding the rest of us. We happen to be the fastest growing healthcare union or nurse union. So we have a lot of nurses and respiratory therapists and others who are on the front line every single day trying to take care of others. How do we make sure they have a standard of enforcement to t- so that they can get protected? How do we make sure that they have the proper PPE? The third was that since physical distancing is really the only way to mitigate in the absence of a vaccine, how do we deal with the economic impacts short and long term on workers that are unemployed, on workers who have lost their insurance, on families who somebody died, a worker died, and they no longer have insurance. Now, health insurance in other places are paid in different ways, but how do we deal with the fact that a lot of people are now out of work, almost 30 million, and how do we make sure that rent is paid, all these other things happen, the short-term and then ultimately the long-term economic impacts of this economic catastrophe. And the fourth, particularly since we have Donald Trump as president, is how do we make sure we safeguard our next election? We have no idea what's going to happen in November and October, but how do we safeguard that election? How do we have things like vote by mail? But how do we make sure we have an election in November and that we safeguard it? These are the four things that we've been working on almost day and night as we moved to virtual. The nicest day I've had in the last few weeks was that the UFT, the local in New York, and the AFT worked with an entity called First Book, which we work with a lot, and we were able to get 10,000 books to homeless kids. And in seeing those kids, seeing their faces, seeing the connection that they, in isolation with their families, could keep a couple of books themselves that were age-appropriate, that were attentive to social-emotional well-being, and I just got the picture, seeing their faces as they got those books. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people, and that was our international labor news update from Solidarity News, produced by Radio Labor in Canada. For more on Radio Labor, see their website at radiolabor.net. We'll have more on teachers' unions dealing with COVID-19 later in the program, but I now want to get to tonight's featured interview. Labor journalist Mike Elk became the story a few years back when he led an effort to unionize the staff at the publication Politico. He was illegally fired for those efforts, but the NLRB settlement that resulted gave him the funds to launch his own online publishing site devoted to the labor movement, which he calls Payday Report. It's an excellent source of stories covering developments in the workers' movement. The profile of the Payday Report was given a major boost in recent months as the home of the COVID-19 strike tracker. Its interactive map catalogs what are now over 230 strikes that have taken place since the beginning of March, all of them in response to the pandemic in some way. I talked to Mike by phone last Thursday to find out more about the strike tracker and the COVID-19 strike wave interactive map. Mike, I wanted to start off with you. Uh, if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about Payday Report in case they're not familiar. 
Well, you know, I founded Payday Report um, you know, back in uh, 2016 uh, after I was fired during the union drive at Politico. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'd won a large settlement because I was fired illegally, uh, $70,000. And, uh, you know, I couldn't find any work. So a buddy suggested that, you know, I start my own little thing to cover labor and news deserts, going to places where people aren't covering stories. Uh, you know, in our first year in business, we wind up doing $35,000 in business. Uh, you know, it wasn't quite uh, enough money uh, to get by, but it was enough uh, that, you know, I went to go work at The Guardian part-time for a few years. Uh, and now I'm focusing on payday because our membership has grown so much. Uh, you know, we get over $70,000 a year for a small operation. It's me and another person part-time. Uh, you know, we get over $70,000 a year, uh, and we found a way to, to break into the media bubble, uh, to puncture the media bubble. Uh, you know, uh, we've, uh, you know, we've come out with a strike tracker. We're tracking um, strikes over the U.S. There's 230 strikes across the U.S. right now. Um, and, you know, we're helping to puncture the mainstream media conversation. Yeah, and the strike tracker is what I uh, definitely wanted to reach out to you about right now. Um, I noticed that early on in this COVID crisis that you had uh, created this strike tracker, um, which is really impressive. What what uh, convinced you to, to launch the this strike tracker and the uh, strike wave interactive map? Well, you know, people kept saying, you know, where, where, you know, where are all these strikes happening? Is there a list somewhere? And we wanted to make at a definitive list and update it and show the scale. And, you know, you know, I think what's happening here is that the, uh, the strike wave is much larger than a lot of these reopen rallies across the U.S., uh, which we've shown. Uh, and, you know, publications like the, the New York Times, NPR, The Economist, other places have cited us. So I think what we've done at Payday Report is show the value of uh, independent community media bursting through the corporate media bubble. Right. And you've recorded now well over uh, 200 strikes. Did you say uh, 230 now? Is that is that where we're at? Yeah, 230 strikes. And these range from uh, all kinds of they're, they're strikes, but they're also workplace actions of a variety. Can you talk a little bit about some of the kind of examples of the things that you've uh, added to the map? Yeah, I mean, we've seen, you know, a meatpacking industry. Obviously, there have been a lot of strikes. Uh, almost half of all beef production shut down in the U.S. Uh, I don't know where it's at today. Um, you know, we've seen 11,000 uh, workers uh, in the poultry industry get COVID. Uh, there have been a number of strikes in nursing homes as well as in some hospitals uh, over a lack of PPE. We've seen 60,000 healthcare workers get COVID. Uh, so we're seeing uh, really big numbers of workers go out on strike, uh, particularly in industries where coworkers have tested sick or positive. Right. Um, so I'm curious now that you've been tracking these strikes so closely, do you see any particular trends or have you identified anything in particular that you think stands out? Um, you know, I think certainly we've seen, um, uh, you know, we've seen, um, we've seen, uh, you know, I think workers just taking action, uh, particularly after somebody gets sick on the job. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing it in uh, a lot of big industries, People over across different types of industries are striking. Uh, workers are scared for their lives now. You know, it used to be that workers were scared of losing their jobs, but now they're scared for their lives. Right. And, you know, a lot of these strikes, too, have not been at unionized workplaces. A lot of them have been at, of non-union workers. The Amazon workers uh, are a perfect example. Um even some of the strikes that I've covered uh, locally in the Chicago area have been workers that uh, are either in touch with workers centers or are in the process of forming unions, but are not necessarily a part of unions. So there's been a lot of, I'd say, just kind of worker self-activity going on. A lot of, uh, you know, what you call wildcat strikes, I guess. Uh, so it's, it's, there are certainly are unionized workers involved in this too, but it's really a much deeper than just organized labor. Yeah, I, I certainly think that's the case, um, and I, I, I think we're seeing it particularly in communities of color, uh, you know, where we've seen the most uh, non-traditional union organized, labor organizing happening is in communities of color, particularly in the fast food industries, and day laborers, uh, other occupations uh, like that. Uh, so we've seen a lot of immigrant workers. Uh, we've seen immigrant candy makers in Chicago go out on strike. We've seen immigrant workers making uh, masks in Chicago go out on strike, as well as immigrant warehouse workers. Um, a lot of these strikes, particularly in poultry plants, are being fed by immigrant workers. So it's important to really keep in perspective that essential workers are a majority people of color. 
uh, and that these strikes are being driven by much deeper uh, racial inequities in this country, in large part. Right, right, which is, that's definitely been laid bare by the COVID crisis as well, of course. Yeah. What, how do you think this compares to other strike waves in U.S. history? I, I, I can't. I keep bringing to mind the the forty five, forty six. You know, the largest strike wave in U.S. history. Of course, this is not quite on that scale. Partly because you know a lot of the strikes at that time were these you know gigantic uh, industrial strikes at uh, um, auto plants and those kind of things. But certainly in the level of again that that kind of just worker self activity, a lot of those strikes were at you know already unionized workplaces. This is I think what is striking about this is how many of these workers again are not already in unions but are taking action on their own. Yeah, and I, I think that's part of a bigger culture. I mean, this is part of a bigger boiling up of strikes. You know, last year we saw the highest number of strikes in more than a decade uh, with teachers striking and, you know, fast food workers and other groups striking. Uh, so we've been seeing more and more strikes coming into this, and I think they've gotten more popular, particularly the Fight for 15 and particularly the teacher strikes. Those are two very high-profile examples of effective strikes that have captured public imagination, uh, captured public support. Um, so I think you know, there was a lot of hard work done over the last decade. You know, sometimes labor has these breakthrough moments uh, where, you know, all of a sudden there's a lot of activity. And people often forget the years and years of work that was done to build that kind of support and trust. I mean, the workers in these immigrant rights communities, uh, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure that was laid for a lot of these, uh, you know, immigrant worker strikes in warehouses and in packing houses. There was a lot of infrastructure laid. Um, so, you know, people forget, uh, how much work was done, uh, in advance of this. Uh, and now we're seeing a real spiraling off. And I think it's interesting, uh, you know, obviously, uh, a lot of people in the labor movement, Joe Biden wasn't their first pick. A lot of people really like Bernie a lot. Uh, but even yesterday, you know, Joe Biden came out in support of AB5 and against Uber and Lyft, those companies. Uh, so, you know, say what you want about Joe Biden, but, you know, the Obama track record is one of getting some things done for labor. It's a question of if we do come in with a Democratic administration, how much can labor get done? Uh, and that's really where we're at. You know, I think we're at this point um, where really labor could make a lot of gains right now. It's really going to require a lot of organizing around unemployed workers. You know, those pandemic unemployment benefits, which are nearly triple what regular unemployment benefits are, are set to expire sometime in July, I think, uh, sometime this summer. And, you know, for workers, uh, that's going to be a huge cut to, to salaries, uh, particularly when uh, not a lot's going to be as reopened as people think it's going to be reopened uh, and the economy snacks. So that means a lot of folks are going to be willing to scab. And so we're going to have to do a lot of organizing, I think, just not in the workplace, but also politically to keep programs to really support unemployed workers in place. Uh, you know, if, you know, Biden comes into office next January, I mean, we're going to have to fight uh, for another six months at least. And, and you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a hard fight. Uh, but, you know, that's covering the labor movement. You know, we're always there for the big fights. Right, right. You brought up a lot there that I think is uh, worth, uh, you know, highlighting. I, I hadn't even thought about the fact that, yeah, I think unemployed organizing the, among unemployed workers is going to be uh, key for labor moving forward. And I hadn't even really thought about that until you raised it. I'm glad you did. Yeah, and and if you if you look at the 30s, right, that was a key component of those strikes too, was protecting people from evictions and providing mutual aid, helping people get fed, and those kind of things. We're going to have to really build out those systems, right? Right, right. And there's two other things you raised, too, in your comments that I want to highlight real quick, which is, one is that relationship always between spontaneity and organization, right? So, um, for instance, you take the uh, Amazon uh, workers, which have take, you know captured a lot of the imagination of the public recently with the actions there, and a lot of those have been, you know, uh, labeled kind of spontaneous actions or um, you know, have this kind of idea that it's, you know, all about kind of just work or self-activity that kind of burst through the surface of this current crisis. But when you hear some of the uh, people who are at the center of it, uh, I, I aired some comments of one of the workers who was involved in that at one of the Labor Notes webinars, and you realize that, uh, 
he was a guy who was very politically conscious, who kind of went into working at Amazon with the idea initially that maybe he could organize people at Amazon. So there's always this uh, undercurrent oftentimes of organizing that's gone on way before the spontaneous actions occur. And it always kind of, there's, there's always a tension or always a kind of a, a relationship there between organizing and spontaneity that we have to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, I, you know, I had an uncle who was a backcountry judge here and he uh, used to always say, you have to stay positive because you never know which situations can happen, particularly in organizing. Uh, and that's what I would tell people right now is it is a really bad uh, situation and it's going to be really rough for a lot of workers, but it could also be a big opening. Uh, and I think, you know, we have to stay positive and the ability of labor to push back. Obviously, the next six months with Trump still in office are going to be really tough. You know, if Biden comes into office, it'll be easier. Uh, but this is going to be a dogfight. And this is the biggest challenge I think the labor movement has ever faced in my, in my generation, in my lifetime. Right. Well, one more question. I know you need to get going. I know you're you're tight on deadline right now. Oh. Um, but uh, um, th- one other thing you raised there that I it's kind of a question I put out there uh, for listeners that are curious to get feedback from them. I'm getting kind of different feedback from different people. But you raised the immigrants rights movement uh, and the role that that's played in kind of reinvigorating uh, the labor movement in recent years. And I had put out the question what that whether uh, uh, May Day 2020 was going to be uh possibly the the most important May Day since 2006, right? 2006 was the great May Day with the mega marches that the immigrants' rights movement kind of brought May Day back uh, to this country after its absence for, you know, decades of of much importance in this country. And I've kind of felt that that was maybe, you know, in the the weeks that followed, uh, maybe not so much the case. And it it was kind of an important, maybe corrective to sometimes the enthusiasm, the excitement sometimes we get of these things and being, you know, the the mainstream media can sometimes color impressions. And I think the mainstream media kind of jumped on this bandwagon, particularly with the Amazon strikes. They, they kind of promoted a lot of things beforehand that didn't necessarily actually happen that day. Um, and it's it, it goes to show when uh, when the mainstream media doesn't isn't actually in touch with actual workers on the ground that they can get a get a very, you know, uh, incorrect picture of what's actually happening. And I, I kind of fell into that myself, thinking that maybe more would happen on May Day than it did. But I think the importance of May Day this year will actually be in what happens in the coming months, right? As these uh, strike waves continue, maybe a question more is, is just 2020 going to be, you know, one of the most important years in recent memory in, for, for labor, if you get what I mean? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I hate to say it, um, you know, I think about Biden, I mean, look, uh, it's certainly going to be tough. Uh, he's certainly more in debt to corporate interests, but without somebody like him in there, it's just going to be chaotic. I mean, I, I, I really feel that the Trump administration has got to a point where they're willing to kill a certain number of people to get the economy reopened. Right. Right. It does seem that way. That they've made a they made a cold hearted decision that you know three or four hundred thousand deaths is something that will accept. I mean, we're seeing an event we haven't seen this level of mass death in the United States since the Civil War. Right. Yeah. Good point. Good. Very good point. Well, Mike, thank you for taking out time to talk with me. I know it's it's a lot of work keeping that uh, site going and keeping things up to date. And we'll definitely put links up to your site and up to the stri- uh, strike tracker up on our uh, uh, website as well and uh, let people know about it because I think it's an excellent tool if you want to you know, keep in, on top of all that's going on because uh, this strike, I think, is just continuing and it's going to be an interesting year. Wait, well, thanks for talking. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. We'll need to take a long overdue station ID break, but when we return, CTU sues Betsy DeVos and the Chicago Board of Ed over special education. And Elijah Edwards, president of Ask Me Local 2858, talks about what's in the next proposed round of economic stimulus coming from Washington. So make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people. 
The Chicago Teachers Union has decided to sue the Chicago Board of Education and U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos over new unattainable mandate rewriting tens of thousands of individual education plans for special education students during the COVID-19 pandemic. The mandate, which would literally require more hours than are available to special education teachers in the rest of the school year under the best of circumstances, let alone under the current conditions, is distracting from the real need of special education staff to innovate on the fly during this crisis due to the lack of planning and direction by either the Chicago Board of Ed, the State of Illinois, or the U.S. Department of Education. The situation is highly ironic as it took the recent contract negotiations between the CTU and the board to get the board to finally agree to start following the law in regard to previous violations of SPED students' legally mandated rights. In a recently virtual or Zoom press conference on the lawsuit, the anger of educators and union officials was quite evident, not only to the mandate, but to DeVos's flippant response to the lawsuit. You will hear first here CTU Vice President Stacey Davis-Gates, followed by CTU President Jesse Sharkey, and then CTU Financial Secretary Maria Moreno, who will introduce two rank-and-file special education teachers. Um, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Um, today we're going to lay out some of the um, challenges that our members have been facing um, with respect to offering um, our students special education services um, that they so desperately need. Look, we're in the middle of a pandemic. This, um, these times are different. They're trying. They're unlike anything that we've experienced as um, a, 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 a nation, a global community in 100 years. Um, obviously, um, you know, our members went from being in front of a whiteboard, in front of a Zoom camera, uh, virtually overnight. Um, and with that, um, the directives to our special educators um, have been less than what they needed to be. And as a result, students who need the most have been um, deprioritized. Listen, um, the U.S. Department of Education under um, Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos offered zero direction to our state board of education. And by doing that, it gave our local school districts the opportunity to create directives. And what the Chicago Public Schools did um, was not provide us with anything that resembles innovation, anything that resembles more uh, time to provide support to parents and provide instruction to our students. Um, we have been in a situation where the legal department have provided these directives to limit liability, right? And by doing that, they have made case managers, they've made clinicians, they have made educators, um, paralegals, and paper pushers instead of folks who are offering direct instruction to our students. So the lawsuit reflects the need for us to instruct our students. We want to be in a position to innovate. We want to be in a position to offer support to parents. What we are faced with right now is a massive amount of paperwork. What we are faced with now are parents and students and educators frustrated because they cannot connect on the level that they need to in order to offer our students the services that they need. But this is nothing new with the Chicago Public Schools. This is a school district that is currently under ISBE, Illinois State Board of Education Monitor, for past abuses of special education law. So the failure of the Trump administration to provide Lori Lightfoot's Chicago Public Schools with direction on how to offer some of the most vulnerable students that we have in our, our system support and protection has led to an imaginable request for paperwork and the lack of innovation and instruction necessary to ensure that our students, their families get the support that our clinicians, that our case managers, that our educators want to so desperately provide to them. Um, I think Jesse is next. Thanks, Casey. I want to be clear that the Chicago Public Schools and Betsy DeVos, who's heading the Federal Department of Education, have forced us to this point. 
Um, they forced us with a deficient policy during this pandemic. And frankly, we think it amounts to a clear difference to the needs of special education students at this moment. Our goal and the goal with this lawsuit is to get special education students the supports they need to get our members, the teachers, the clinicians, the PSRPs, the supports that they need, and the, the freedom from onerous and impossible to meet administrative requirements um, to, to get the federal and local policymakers to make our jobs doable. It certainly takes more than ingenuity, in, uh, innovation, and grit which is what Betsy DeVos has said that we're gonna be working with. It takes resources and leadership from the federal government. We've had none of those. It takes more than putting your head in the sand and passing the bag to the person below you. So the federal government passed the bag to the state, the state passed it to the district, the district passes it to teachers. And as teachers, we're not the ones who are willing to be left holding that bag uh, when we're working ourselves silly, trying to make special education work during the course of a pandemic. So that's really where this lawsuit originated. And uh, what we hope to do is we, we hope to um, force both policy changes and resources into the schools that will allow for the proper education of our students with IEPs. Um, I am gonna note that the Illinois State Board of Education has told school districts that they must bargain with their unions to come to mutual agreement on the terms of remote learning, something which Chicago Public Schools never did. And um, while CPS ignored that, um, that in fact wound up robbing our students of instruction time and supports as workers scrambled uh, to fill in unnecessary and impossible onerous paperwork requirements. So we're going to let uh, both our financial secretary, Maria Moreno, who is also a clinician, uh, talk, and she's also going to introduce some rank and file members who've been working specifically under these conditions, um, trying to make remote learning work. So Maria, that's to you. Um, you know, our, our educators from day one, uh, as Jesse had mentioned, have had to scramble to figure out how to uh, plan for remote learning and then implement it on their own, right? They didn't get the direction at the local level with the school district. Um, and the failure of the federal government to recognize that we are in a global pandemic, we are in uncharted territory, and just says, oh, just keep doing everything the way it was when the schools were open. Not realizing that we're gonna need resources and we're gonna need a lot of support so that the, the students receive the services they need and our members can provide it in a way that's sane and makes sense. Um, now, I would also like to introduce our speakers. Um, you know, no one knows better than our frontline workers, our teachers, case managers, counselors, and clinicians, what our special education students need and deserve. Uh, we were confronting massive staff shortages before COVID struck, and CPS has used efficient federal policy to make a bad situation worse. Today, we are joined by two of our tireless frontline special education workers, Carolyn Burns, who is a case manager and special education teacher, and Carolina Juarez-Hill, a social worker, who are going to say a few words about why CPS and federal policy is unworkable and irresponsible. Uh, and I now give you Carolyn Burns. Go ahead, Carolyn. Hi, everyone. Um, as Maria mentioned, uh, I am a special education teacher and a case manager at Bowen High School, and I'm also a member of the CTU SPED committee. Uh, there are three types of case managers in CPS, and uh, we have standalone or full-time CMs, 0.5 or part-time CMs, and we also have case managers who receive a stipend for taking on additional duties during the school day. Case managers who receive a stipend can also teach up to five classes a day while also providing case management services to students with disabilities and their families. There are many challenges for case managers like me during remote learning because CPS has mandated that all case managers schedule meetings with parents to develop a remote learning plan or RLP for all students with disabilities. This has greatly increased the workload for all case managers in the district. I receive a stipend for taking on additional duties of case management at my school, which is a small school with 83 students with disabilities out of a total of 246 students. And this has added 
an additional 27 hours to my case management slash teaching calendar for RLP meetings with parents and IEP teams. It is impossible to complete all remote learning plans before school ends, especially in the cases where case managers have hundreds of students with disabilities to schedule meetings for. CPS has not provided a timeline for remote learning plans or any guidance for how they should be written to address the individual needs of students with disabilities. CPS must explain to parents why the full minutes cannot be provided in ROPs during remote learning, just the same as why the full minutes are not provided during extended school year programs for students with disabilities over the summer. The CPS directive to copy and paste to develop ROPs further contributes to the excessive paperwork demand and redundancy with completing over 50,000 ROPs for students with disabilities who have active IEPs or 504 plans, which should only be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. We want to serve and support our students, not be forced to neglect them as we struggle to fulfill CPS's burdensome paperwork requirements and the huge caseload so many of our special ed workers confront. And lastly, CPS should include all stakeholders in the decision-making process before poor ideas are rolled out, causing confusion and distress among members. This includes the members of the CTU, SEIU 73, and parent advocates. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, and now we'll hear from social worker Carolina Juarez-Hill. Hi, thank you for uh, joining, having me participate in this uh, press conference. Uh, the reason I feel that this lawsuit was necessary, it, it kind of highlights the additional stress uh, and the struggles that CPS has put on us clinicians, special teachers, special ed teachers, and case managers. As a social worker, I am witnessing the trauma that the school closure has placed on our students. Um, the other day, we had a SPED teacher that reached out and said, I'm not getting this student to be engaged in the uh, remote learning. When I was eventually able to reach out to the parent and find out the living conditions of the family, it shifted our priorities. This mandate of having us to do additional paperwork is not allowing us to address the priorities. So with this family, I was able to um, have them qualify for the STLS, the homeless program, where eventually in a couple of days, the family was able to partake in those benefits, uh, obtain the services that they needed, and then the student was more engaged. Um, we are re-traumatizing our students if we are not addressing the priorities of their living conditions. And as we can see from press conferences with the governor, as well as others, daily living conditions changes all the time. It is fluid. So we must address that. And it's not allowing us to do that with our families. And that's just one example. There are multiple examples when we reach out and find out the reasons why families are not engaged in the remote learning, we find out that to request of us to do the additional paperwork and meet with parents when their priorities are elsewhere. Uh, with health reasons, living conditions, financial reasons, even with the basic needs of getting food for their families. Um, this changes everything and this just adds to re-traumatizing the family. So I really feel that this lawsuit just highlights the uh, struggles that we currently are experiencing with our families and even members ourselves. And then it just kind of reprioritizes where uh, we shouldn't be. We should be prioritizing where our students need us and where our families need us. Okay, thank you. Later in the same virtual press conference, CTU Financial Secretary Maria Moreno spoke up once again, this time incensed by the flippant comments of Betsy DeVos. Yeah, I, I, I just find, yeah, just following, I, I'm just incensed, literally incensed, that, that the Board of Ed, since the reign of destruction of Forrest Claypool, who Dr. Jackson was in his administration, and I recall back in 2016, we brought up these issues regarding how these policies were being put up to prevent students from getting the needs that they needed as disabled students with needs by putting up roadblocks from not getting them the services and the paraprofessionals, knowing full well that what he did was illegal under the law. And it's the same people who are in administration right now that are blaming educators, blaming us for the delay in services when the board had nothing 
we kept asking us, what is your plan for remote learning for our paraprofessionals, for special education, for clinician? And they repeatedly said, oh, we don't have anything. We don't have anything. We don't have anything. Delaying the process. And now they're making a colossal mess of everything by constantly coming out with revised FAQs, giving vague directions, and then giving directions where it puts all the onus on our members to try to figure things out. It is, it is outrageous, and it sounds just like Betsy DeVos, who has the gall that says, teachers, just shut up and get to work when we're the ones that are trying to fix this mess out and making sure that our kids are safe, and if they need the help, that they, they get the resources that they need. Not the Board of Ed. Now, it's not the Board of Ed making sure the kids have internet and all these devices. It's our members constantly calling and making sure, are you okay? Are you getting help when you're infected and sick? We've had families who are dying. We have students, families who are dying and are sick, don't have their jobs anymore and are hungry. And the gall of the leadership of the federal government and of the city and of the state abdicating the responsibility is just outrageous. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. The U.S. House of Representatives recently passed round two of economic stimulus directly targeting the unemployed and the fourth COVID-19 spending bill overall in what's being called the HEROES Act. It falls far short of what the Progressive Caucus and advocates like Bernie Sanders were calling for. Gone are the proposals for some sort of short-term UBI that would have put serious money in the pockets of working-class Americans and possibly bolstered the economic demand in this crisis. Instead, mostly what we see are more of the same of the past bills, emergency measures meant to stave off total economic calamity and the full-fledged plunge into the depths of the Great Depression 2.0. But even these modest proposals are meeting pushback by the Republican-controlled Senate and are unlikely to see the light of day in their current form. During a recent webinar organized by the Alliance for Community Services entitled A Town Hall on Federal Relief, Elijah Edwards, president of ASME Local 2858, laid out the basics and gave us numbers of what is in the HEROES Act. The services that we do as essential employees is very critical to maintaining the social safety net. And the funding uh, that came out of the House that's now going to the Senate, it does, at the current status of the bill, it does have, uh, it, it was passed with funding for state and local support uh, to the amount of one trillion in state and local territorial and tribal government for fiscal relief. Now that's out of the house in the Senate is where this bill will, will uh, be uh, amended to death. And that's gonna be led by Mitch McConnell and the, uh, by the majority leader, Mitch McConnell. Where I was was about giving an example of some of the provisions that passed out of the house that the Republicans will be fighting. So I think it's really critical that we continue to, that we do follow this link and that we do send uh, communications and send this email and send the letters to Senators Dick Durbin and Tammy Duckworth. Uh, They have fought for the continuation of the provisions in the last bill. They fought for the uh, the $1,200, the provisions for extending unemployment benefits um, in addition to the corporate immunity protections that, this, that Mitch McConnell will be pushing for, uh, of course, they will be trying to attack the second round of the stimulus bill because that was passed out of the House as well of $1,200 stimulus checks to certain Americans and up to $6,000 per household. And they also wanted to, out of the House came the portion of for worker protections of extends the additional uh, expands the CARES Act, employees retention of tax credit, and increasing the credit from 50% to 80% of qualified wages and increasing the employee wage limit from 10000 per year to 15000 per quarter. So, you know, and it also has requirements such as the Occupational uh, Safety and Health Administration to require all workplaces to implement infection control plans. So a lot of these things that, again, came out of the House the Republicans will seek to attack. One in in particular, they will go right at unemployment insurance benefits. Uh, They will try to make sure that people who are on a fixed income from either disability or social security will not not qualify for that benefit as it uh, was applied in the last bill. So um, as far as when it pertains to states, um, 
as we've seen with the with uh, President Trump and also with the support of Mitch McConnell, his silent support, they've they've tried to attempt to politicize some of this stuff with attacking or politically attacking states that are traditionally Democratic Democratic Party states. Um, and I think that that is also important to understand. Uh, coming with that perspective, there is a hypocrisy. You have some Republicans who are looking to use this bill as a means to produce jobs or try to produce jobs for their own state by trying to offset and say, well, these democratic states already got enough funding, move more funding towards my state. So they're gonna look to amend that to try to play states off of each other as we saw with the states working together uh, competing against FEMA for PPE. And so that is also going to be looked at as a strategy because that really hurt a lot of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of red states that, that are hurting for resources, they generally don't get them. And now they're being told, out of, you know, looking to uh, not be in the best interest of their uh, constituents at the sacrifice of ideology, in favor of ideology. So Right now, the bill um, is in support is does have provisions for state and local. I'll go over some more of the stats. It's right now for state and local support is a hundred point one five billion in education funding for state school districts and institutions of higher education. Fifteen billion for highways. Fifteen point seven five billion for transit and agency relief. Three point six billion in grants to states for elections. That's going to be a hot issue. Two billion in CDC funds for state, local, territorial, and you know public health departments, and uh, and repeal of the ten thousand dollar cap on state and local tax deductions. So um, the other one that they really are going to go after too is healthcare. Right, a hundred billion for the public health and social services emergency fund to provide additional relief to hospitals and healthcare providers. That's another part of the bill that came out of the house that they're going to attack. So. Our state budgets are vastly going to be impacted by this. There's already a lot of the conservative perspectives coming out saying that this is an overvalue of workers' uh, ability to move the economy, which is total But again, that's leaning towards the perspective of if we support Wall Street, if we support big business, then the economy will be fine. Everybody's health and social safety net awareness and wellness should be moved towards that versus helping the average working person. Um, I think that, um, you know, fighting and making sure that I'm going to be sending letters. And I think we need to tell as many people as possible to make sure that these letters and keep putting pressure on Dick Durbin and, uh, and uh, Duck, Ms. Duckworth, Tammy Duckworth and any Senator and particularly Chuck, particularly Chuck Schumer, because he's the minority leader to make sure that we call those three people to make sure that they understand that workers will, voices cannot be forgotten and will not be forgotten in this fight because there will be another bill and they'll keep trying this over and over again. Before we end tonight's program, I have something exciting to announce. Labor Express Radio is now part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day a network of 42 and growing labor-oriented radio programs and podcasts from across the country. You can find out more at laborradionetwork.org. That's laborradionetwork.org. This is really an exciting development for us and bodes well for the future, not only for Labor Express, but for labor radio in this country in general, as our combined resources can only strengthen and grow the value we bring to our listeners. I encourage you to check out the site. You will undoubtedly recognize some of our sister programs like Building Bridges, Your Community and Labor Report uh, from New York City, which we've shared so much with over recent years. Uh, But there's so much more there, and uh, I'll have much more to say on the network on upcoming episodes of the program, so definitely tune in for that. Well, that's all for tonight's program. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBEW Local 1220. The views expressed on Labor Express are those of producers, not those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more on Labor Express.